though this is going to be very odd because if this is outtakes then we've already finished and in what case greg what a magnificent show just really good stuff <laughs> now i'm just going to put this at the beginning not even in the outtakes i'm going to put this at the beginning of the show just you to son of a bitch <laughs> gotcha <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't try to play with linear humor against the editor. Yeah, exactly. The editor That's like has trying to control. carve a statue with a spoon. <laughs> Why a spoon, cousin? Why not an axe or a knife? <laughs> okay, okay. Serious face, serious yeah, face. Yeah. The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. So we started off pretty strong with chapters one through four, and now we're getting a little bit deeper into the meat and a little bit deeper into some of the serious elements of Arlington. By that, which I mean that not just in terms of plot events, but in terms of how we are going to be discussing the story as it continues to unfold and we see the different layers and components of everything, let us simply begin where we left off with Chapter 5. And at this point, we have had a complete introduction to our four main narrators, as we covered last time. Now we are starting to see some more important figures being introduced to the story, some of which we've already met in some form, like the voice of President Ulysses S. Grant. Although, to be perfectly honest, the, the only thing part that we've actually heard of him at that point was at the very beginning of Thomas's story as put into uh, the cartographer's handbook, and then for one line when Thomas is narrating his story and Grant briefly asks him a question. As we are continuing on into Arlington itself, uh, not only do we get a greater insight into Grant the man because of that whole conversation the two of them have, we find out not only does Thomas Arlington have a daughter in Harry, we learn almost right away, although it's not made obvious until she mentions it, that he has a second daughter in truth. Obviously, the scene could work on its own without the filial connection. With Conrad being the chief of staff and Truth being the communications director, this is the kind of scene that happens all the time in the West Wing. Conflict between people that are not only co-workers, but are in charge of their various departments and therefore have a common goal, just differing opinions on how to work towards that goal. But this conflict is made more complex by the fact that even though Truth works for Conrad, and the chief of staff could have this conversation with Thomas alone, he chooses to use Truth as support, potentially because of this explicit connection. Consequently, once Truth reveals that she is Thomas's daughter, that is the most interesting part of this whole interaction especially since we can see through characterization and voice acting that Truth is very much her father's daughter. Mm, much to his frustration, she is her father's daughter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. And it's in this chapter that it really starts feeling like Arlington the book is resembling the show that a good portion of this book is based on. It could be its own separate topic, honestly, the way in which 
The novel is presented going from scene to scene in a somewhat linear fashion, but not really in a this scene leads to the next scene leads to the next scene as a lot of other books like Let Them Go or Secret Rooms or um, Tiger's Eye would. Uh, Mm -hmm. It jumps around in time a great deal and really only shows us the important stuff a lot of the time. On top of that, we're now seeing some of the drama that takes place as part of being important figures in the White House administration, arguments that counselors have with bosses, and specifically in regards to, like in this chapter itself, communication. We already highlighted that one line from uh, a couple chapters ago where Thomas was talking about the importance of communication. So it's fascinating to see the arguments that come between himself and Truth and Conrad, specifically as regards to what form official communication should have, whether we're talking about Truth's what she's saying from her position of authority is saying, this is what the administration is doing. And what Thomas is saying is being a part of the handbook, which is what they're directly having a conversation about. Mm. I definitely agree that what we're seeing here is where the book starts to settle into business as usual. It's Mm. not like the initiation of someone who's new to the scene with Frank getting to know the people and the locations and everything like that and Mm -hmm. just getting his job description. And Frank isn't necessarily your point of focus as much as he was in those early chapters. It Mm -hmm. is kind of shifted to this shared perspective on things. Mm -hmm. But structurally, you can see why we're at the point we are at. We've had the chapters that introduce us to all of this setting and the principal characters and we've got a ways to go until we get to whatever third act developments might be on the horizon as such now's the time to get into the day-to-day tasks it's Mm -hmm. world building it's uh, really world building where you get to see not only wide-scale decisions but they're made more personable when you get to see the individuals who take part in the discussions surrounding them In regards to Thomas's conversation about the handbook, I love how loaded the conversation is by his daughter's name being Truth. She is the one advocating for a public statement which is less than wholly forthcoming. Thomas making a case for presenting the facts as they are carries the implication that his valuing of confronting, accepting, and pursuing Truth played a large part in Sarah and his shared decision to name their daughter Truth. Mm. The fact that she is going against that by trying to convince him to place less emphasis on the necessity for unvarnished truth is enough to communicate the dynamic of their relationship with very little time passing and how it has evolved or perhaps even deteriorated over the years. Yeah, we're not going to talk too much about their relationship just yet because Mm, we need to see more before we can infer or make informed estimates on that yeah exactly on top of that it's not really a spoiler to say that this will be addressed in the text itself uh with butler kind of being a bit of a witness to the interpersonal dynamics of the arlington family thanks to his position of privilege but also responsibility, including a direct explanation of why she is actually named Truth, which would seem to be an unusual name overall. I know that there are people out there that are named things like Patience. Faith. Yeah, yeah, okay, Faith is a big one. But like named after very specific like concepts that have been, I don't know what the term is you would use, but for like turning something that is not a name into a name there must be mm. there must be a, a descriptive noun for something like that you almost this, like nominating is not the word for it but it almost like sounds like it would be that but 
Yeah, I can I can see why you would say that too. Yeah. Mm. I was not able to figure out what the term might be for making an abstract noun into a personal name, at least not with a 15-minute Google search. It may be more complex than simply asking the question, however, since a lot of given names often have etymological meanings if you look them up. The given names, often stemming from actual words in other languages. If you've ever seen the movie Dances with Wolves, you're familiar with an obvious example of that with the shaman Kicking Bird, or the scout Wind in His Hair. But if you look up my name, it's derived from the Latin Gregorius. That was itself derived from the Greek given name, which then came from the word Gregorin, a word which is translated as to watch. Therefore, by naming me Greg, one could also say that I have been named Watchful. I can't say for certain if the idea of nominative determinism is true, that we tend towards jobs or behaviors described in our given names, but as we'll get into later down the pike, Truth Arlington's name actually comes from someone who was born with one name and chose another. And on top of the in-universe explanation, we always have to consider that Alex tends towards giving people names that have more than one meaning. With that said, let's get back to the discussion of what some of those meanings may be. The thing about her being named Truth is this is just one detail in a microcosm of mm. how Alex loves to layer meaning on top of meaning. You know, that there is an in-universe explanation for her name and that we can associate metaphors with her being named Truth. And the metaphors can be in harmony with each other or they can be in disconcert with each other. Like they don't always have to lead up to the same thing. The mm. things you triggered on was the idea, as you said a moment ago, that she is suggesting a course of action that is not about truth, but is more comfortable. As Thomas puts it, the comfortable lie towards the end of that particular conversation in chapter five. Mm. Um, Something which is like explicitly opposed to what mm. she is named, what her namesake is. Exactly. Mm. But it doesn't mean that their conversation doesn't itself reveal truths to Thomas, to the audience. Like mm. this isn't simply an argument a bad faith argument, one could say, where one of them is just trying to get their way and the truth be damned, so to speak. There is actual form and content that is of value, even mm. if Thomas ends up not heeding what Conrad and Truth have to say regarding their opinions about the handbook. I think you pointed out at some point, either in our notes or just inside conversation, that Thomas says, I really am listening. Exactly. And we we believe that he is. Mm. But this, I think, is a little bit where I wanted to start getting into something that you got very excited about when I proposed it a few weeks back. I, is, that sounds like me. I am a very excitable person. When we mentioned... In our first Skype session uh, regarding chapters one through four, referring to the novel Arlington as a tragedy, that meant that I was sort of going out of my way to like, well, okay, I wasn't actually going out of my way doing this until I just so happened to watch a very specific YouTube. Say it with me, folks. Was it OSP? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I actually have been chugging those down, just like watching every single thing that they've been putting out. And I can't exactly say what spurred this necessarily, because I, at first I was bouncing off some of those early videos. Um, but it's actually something that Maureen and I were doing while she was visiting with me here in, in my uh, apartment, that when we needed just some quiet time, the two of us would just 
sit on the couch and watch OSP videos specifically together. Um, she had already watched a bunch of them. I was watching a bunch of them for the first time. And the one that uh, Red did on the idea of tragedy, as opposed to a specific Greek tale or play or anything like that that uses tragedy, but just on the idea of literary tragedy in general, that I started learning about some things that I might have known in a vague conceptual way, but not in terms of literary significance of it. It is nice when you can take things that branches all these ideas that you have kind of inferred, but never really taken the time of day to kind of write them down, either in a literal sense or in a sort of mental capacity to just sit and think about it, mm. and to just have something which formats that into a clearly thought out way that not necessarily presents a narrative, but it kind of does a deconstruction, a sort of dissection of it that says that this is how it can go, but it also is quite explorative in that. I say this with complete sincerity, it's a very relaxing and therapeutic thing to do, and I recommend any of their series, really. They, mm. I, I can't really limit them to one capacity or another. They do mm. history, they do writing, they do uh, folklore, they, everything. If you want fun education, then that's a good place on the internet to do it. If there's one thing I never expected I would enjoy hearing about, it's listening to Blue talk about his love of don'ts. I am not an archaeology. I am not an architecture fan, but Blue makes domes exciting. Well, I but, know what I'm watching later. <laughs> but so on the subject of tragedy in particular, you, I think, have more of a foundation in it due to it being connected to your college learning and your um, your major and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, no, that was uh, something that uh, came about. I, I think it came up once or twice in school just because like a lot of, the Shakespeare stories are very mm, much mm. sort of wrapped up all in that. But there was a, it was my dissertation for my bachelor's, which is sort of like the undergraduate stuff, where I was doing English literature and I decided to be a rebel and incorporate a movie into my thing. Uh, but <laughs> I did a dissertation which was looking at a lot of what that video looks at, which is how the genre of tragedy or or how like revenge tragedy has sort of evolved or what it has been over the years and looking at the Kill Bill duology as a way of like seeing what it does that sort of subverts that. I came up with a term for what I thought it was doing that was different to revenge tragedy, which I don't know if I would stand by it anymore. I think instead of me saying it's revenge redemption, I would say it is more like revenge restoration, um, mm. because the idea of that, and we will get into the components of everything that, that the tragedy genre entails, but my point with that is that Kill Bill kind of actively refutes or subverts the typical path of the tragedy, that feeling of self-destructive ends where... The idea is often that uh, Wendigos are very excited about the idea of uh, revenge and tragedy and all of that. I mean, a big part of it is you don't necessarily have to be well-versed in literature in this area to kind of get this. Is mm. like The idea is that revenge won't bring back what you lost or like the idea is with tragedy is you're compelled to do something and that's setting you on this inevitable path to destruction or to calamity or some other word which evades me for something that describes that sort of progression but oh, anyway oh oh oh, oh. I, I i know this one i know this one is it hamartia yeah that's it um <laughs> <laughs> so i was reluctant at first to actually look at to look at Arlington as a tragedy in the literary sense, because the one thing that I always associate tragedies with is either certain Shakespeare plays 
or certain Greek plays in mm -hmm. which there's very specific in terms of what component the quote-unquote fatal flaw, the thing that Hamartia is supposed to refer to, what form that takes. Like the one that always comes immediately to mind is Jason. And for those of you who are not in the know, this is the Greek hero Jason, as in Jason and the Argonauts. He makes certain decisions along the course of his life that lead to an almost very necessary downfall uh, at the hands of Medea and, by some argument, the gods themselves. But it was only through a little bit of research on the subject where I looked up the term and learned that, at the very least in the opinion of certain learned scholars, that simply equating Hamartia with the term fatal flaw, as in a, a quality about them that is specifically, these are, this is a, a, a moral deficiency or something like that, and so therefore says something bad about them as a person. There's a, a quote that I want to um, share here as a part of my research. There's a, a scholar named Jules Brody who wrote a book on the subject who says, It is the height of irony that the idea of the tragic flaw should have had its origin in the Aristotelian notion of homartia. Whatever this problematic word may be taken to mean, it has nothing to do with such ideas as fault, vice, guilt, moral deficiency, or the like. Hamartia is a morally neutral, non-normative term, derived from the verb hamartano, meaning to miss the mark, or to fall short of an objective. And by extension, to reach one destination rather than the intended one, to make a mistake, not in the sense of a moral failure, but in the non-genmental sense of taking one thing for another, taking something for its opposite. Hamartia may betoken an error of discernment due to ignorance, to the lack of an essential piece of information. And finally, Hamartia may be viewed simply as an act which, for whatever reason, ends in failure rather than success. Mm. That quote right there already makes me a little bit more favorable to consider what qualities in Thomas and potentially what qualities in other people might lead to missing the mark, to, to falling short of an objective, mm. without coming up with some unfortunate commentary on actions taken by him that seem eminently laudable in terms of this is a good goal to be pursuing. It's mm. not quite like Othello being led astray by Iago and killing his wife or anything like that. Or mm. Jason cheating on Medea after making a vow before the gods to remain faithful. Here, if we're just looking at this is a quality about Thomas that is a significant component of his general makeup and decisions that he made based on this quality may have directly or indirectly led to his death, which we can talk about because the very first chapter says it, then it, it doesn't feel wrong to start unpacking what qualities those might be. Hmm. It's, it's the idea, I think, missing the mark, another way you could describe that is a characteristic of theirs being misplaced. And mm. it's the idea that a lot of the things that could be described as fatal flaws can be actually quite admirable qualities, mm. things that in any other context would actually be a, could be a virtue. Mm. And uh, in that OSP video that Red talks about tragedy, she makes a point which I never considered before, the, despite the fact that she says that it's uh, something others have pointed out, which is that if you swap the context of Othello and Hamlet's stories, mm. their quote-unquote fatal flaw of 
Othello being too impulsive, Hamlet overthinking things to extremes, <laughs> is actually something that could have played in their favour. If like Iago is trying to manipulate Hamlet to try and you know be impulsive be impulsive and it's just like no i need to soliloquize for 10 more scenes uh, but yeah i was about to say that was a really good moment in the video and i'm just going to put up a link to it in the show notes so that everyone can appreciate this but but go on yeah so i i think that that's the key thing to take here because we obviously can't get all into how this fits as a tragedy now because it requires a certain overview of the narrative which mm -hmm. we don't want to get into the important thing for us to kind of identify as a tragedy with that tension building as we progress through it is that feeling of inevitability which comes through a certain omniscience that we as audiences have and that comes from the prologue telling us that these are the events that led to the death of Starlington. We've heard it straight from the horse's mouth, although the nag isn't in in this one, uh, that this <laughs> is a tragedy, that this mm -hmm. is like something about this is leading to calamity. And mm -hmm. because of that, there is an inevitability to this, a, almost a literal inevitability, which means that we can assess it as a tragedy as we go through it. So for the time being, it's difficult to see what could be, like, because we don't know the specifics of the conclusion, but we are already getting certain things to the point where mm -hmm. some characters will almost flat out state what the Hamartia or fatal flaw is with Thomas, where he's criticizing himself in front of Frank and saying it's like because I have a pathological need for control like he says it almost sort of mm. to say it before <laughs> Frank it's like I, I didn't say that you were thinking it and it's just sort of like okay well everybody heard that right like we we, we kind of that's that's giving us something to work with here you know we don't have to dig deep for that it's clear that and uh, I mean that's a little bit dirt further down the path but yeah that was mm -hmm. definitely in my own mind in terms of Thomas's stubbornness being a definite component during those scenes in chapter four and chapter five. Uh, mm -hmm. First, where he's having the conversation with Sarah and Frank, and then again, where he's having a far more confrontational moment with Conrad and Truth, where he's Thomas not really being confrontational. You jest, sir. I mean, technically, it was Conrad and Truth being confrontational, but we can already see, like, in Thomas's own mind, he can see what's coming, and so therefore, he is attempting to remain in control of the conversation and um, get the outcome that he thinks is important merely by putting on you know, an air of just being in more in control of his emotions and mm. trying not to let their heat and their passion get in the way of his practicality as he sees it. Yeah, he, he even says that, like, he could see it coming and he he opted to be sort of implacable. He's sort of going, okay, before this encounter begins, I'm readying myself in this stance. And it's that sort of <laughs> assessment of things, which means that like any good political thriller, the conversations are essentially like fencing matches where you're just trying to see, like, oh, uh, okay, yeah. thing there, thing there. And even if it's not, like, hostile it's fascinating to see the approaches dispositions and ways that these different people these participants in these conversations approach discourse and mm -hmm. even by the end of it you sort of conclude you don't walk away with an unfavorable impression of conrad or truth you do actually sort of see that kind of got a point this will be an inevitable consequence of what thomas's plans are you can't really argue against that so yeah it's it's easy to see what they're saying but we will be inclined towards thomas because we've already read the handbook mm. feasibly like we already have an idea of what the text should be 
So to think of it changing is kind of almost counter to our own experience as readers or as, as the audience. Yeah, we, we already know that the handbook hasn't changed. Because mm. so it's almost a the, foregone conclusion then ex- how this exactly. conversation goes. Yeah, this is meant to be the second printing of the handbook that they're talking about, the one in which Thomas includes the story of his life. We didn't read the first volume as being the actual novel that was presented to us to intake. It's already happened at this point, and the only thing we can see is the sequence of events that led to it happening and the whys and wherefores of why the handbook was laid out the way it was initially and why the changes came to it the way they did but that it wasn't changed as significantly as conrad and truth would have wanted to um Mm -hmm. i want to keep talking about this but before we get too far off track part of the reason why i wanted to include the idea of hamartia now is Embedded in all of that quote that I just gave a second ago, where he's unpacking what Hamarsha means to him, Brody uh, uses the, the words to reach one destination rather than the intended one. And those words are in chapter five itself, where Thomas is talking about people thought that their lives would go one way and it ended up going another. That is also that is one of the founding ideas about telling the story of New Century in a lot of what we've talked about already and will continue to talk about as things evolve. So I just found that to be a fascinating little piece of poetic synchronicity. Yeah, because you're so inclined to think of that as about grief that you don't think of it as like tragic destinations Ah, this is good this is already good (laughs) it's always good i just like it when we can dig a little deeper and find new layers to this onion that is new century Hmm. you you know what like disney song is probably the mantra of us here on through the window i'll give you a hint it's from princess and the frog and it's you gotta dig a little deeper I, I feel bad because I've actually not seen The Princess and the Frog. So, unfortunately, that's a reference that I do not get, but I'm, I'm going to go looking for it now. It's, it's solid. I, I enjoy it. At time of edit, there was a conversation going on in the New Century Forum that took me aback a little bit. Because longtime fan Dan Mayer pointed out a detail that we tripped over and discarded in a conversation between me and Toby that has now been edited out of the final product of Through the Window. This resulted in a complex conversation that was fascinating and mind-expanding, but involves layers to Arlington that we cannot get into now, because it requires the reading of two whole other books, plus all of Arlington, to get your head around certain concepts. What this means in general is that we can't possibly discuss it normally until after we finish discussing Uncivil Outlaw, or possibly even Stone Spring Maidens. But that's a long time to wait, and I worry that we might forget about it in the meantime. So at some point after our first recording of Century Tales, I may insist that me and Maureen include Toby in a further discussion of this idea if it has enough meat on it. Because it's a good one, and worth sharing for those readers that have already made it that far. But, yeah, no, moving on. Um... Yes, so coming back to the conversation of Chapter 5, more than anything else, that whole interaction gets to the heart of many conversations that we've already had about the handbook in our seven episodes on the subject. The fact that Thomas understands the handbook is propaganda either way, the hard truth or the comfortable lie, and that he would rather push for change and for reunification at the same time. You know, the arguments and the discussions present during this first part of the chapter are possibly, I don't, I don't know for certain, but I wonder if they're results of the commentary of fans of New Century up to that point, particularly when Conrad 
mentions all the minutiae that the handbook gets into uh, in terms of like, you're reading this out to a crowd. This is important information for the cartographers. This isn't stuff that they necessarily need to know. And part of what makes this moment great is that in the larger sense, as, as this, this conflict plays out, you can understand, as we were saying a moment ago, the argument for both sides. You can see Thomas's side of it, and you can see Conrad and, and Truth's side of it. Even if philosophically we side with Thomas, it certainly doesn't help that we can't think about how things are in our world and how they might be different if someone way back when, like Thomas, was pushing for change during a moment where it might actually have a chance to take effect. Mm. Listening back to these words now makes me feel a little foolish. Because the simple truth of the matter is that there have always been people pushing for needful change in order to expand privilege, stand up for rights, and stand against bigotry and violence. There have been women activists, BIPOC and AAPI activists, activism for LGBTQ+, and gender identity, and neurodiversity, and even those pushing back against the grindstones of capitalism and fascism. And the simple truth is that while there have been successes, there have been many more activists that have been suppressed or defeated. Some of them terminally. The difference in New Century is the weakness of the old order might make possible the change towards something better. And my hope is, in the wake of 2020, that maybe we are also going through a period during which momentous change can also come. It doesn't seem great, right now, licking our wounds after COVID in the fastest orange, especially with all of the political machinations coming out of the last few months. But hope is not up for debate, and people are not done fighting. That having been said, let us return once more to this other world and our discussions on it. It is important to show that the political landscape the Arlingtons are navigating doesn't just come down to striving to overcome the obvious opponents, bigots, secessionists, those whose actions or presence invite dangerous or criminal activity. No, the Arlingtons have to also make an active effort to convince the rest of the staff and colleagues on their side to go with them on their various plans. And while there's a palpable frustration for all of those involved in the scene as they each struggle to enact what they think is the best next step as a pivotal turning point in the government they even say that like this might be one of the most important decisions like we've made or has ever been made especially in the case of general population communications so despite their frustrations and the extreme stress placed on all of them they do still express a sincere respect for one another like you were saying I think Alex's delivery as Thomas when he says, I really am listening, it reads as completely sincere. Mm -hmm. You could, like, those same words in text or just, like, in any other context read as insincere, but here, like, I don't doubt him at all. I think he is mm -hmm. genuinely hearing them on this. It shows that, like, as resolute as Thomas is in this next step, he really will give Conrad the time of day. It doesn't make the business of convincing your allies who expressly disagree with you any easier, but it nevertheless shows the kind of environment you would want to be conducting this kind of business in, rather than with people who manifestly oppose you, your philosophy, your political goals, or even your ethnicity and background. And yeah, it's also kind of great to hear the meta-commentary on the cartographer's handbook concerning like too much minutiae and everything that won't capture the interests of its audience. It's amusing, but it's also kind of vindicating to a degree. It's immense that that book is much more a reflection of the interior thinking and goals of its authors and editors, rather than a text that we should consider in the same way as a traditionally told narrative, of which there are many, many others in the series, mm -hmm. even at this early stage. 
it doesn't necessarily reframe cartographers as the scene ultimately stands by what that book is, even with its faults. Instead, it's more of a clarification to help us better situate it if we hadn't managed to already do so. And if nothing else, this and other segments early on in the book presents enough of what was included in the handbook to ensure that even if you understandably skip over cartographers, you have the key details. They should absolutely still check out Catherine's story. That one's essential. <laughs> yeah, that was how part of how we ended our final look into the handbook. I do, I do agree. I also think to myself, this conversation in light of the previous scene between Frank and Thomas and Sarah about Thomas liking it when people bring their A game. I feel like one could definitely argue that that's what Conrad and Truth are doing, which is mm. part of the reason why he says, I really am listening, because I don't think that that conversation would have necessarily played out in quite the same way if he didn't respect and wasn't listening to what they were actually saying. I feel mm. like the final words that he has to say to them in regards to their worried conclusions about it do show that he was taking on board certain things that they were saying, even as he was being very disparaging of mm. like the, the alternate stuff that Conrad was providing that they wanted to put out instead of the... Because when, when, when Alex is performing Thomas, he is putting on a Thomas voice. In 1776, our founding fathers decreed that this land and its assembled colonies across 13 territories would become its own United States of America. <laughs> and it, you well, can't that's... help but laugh. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> I love... Anything where you are, like, where it's a case of someone is playing a character who is putting on a voice, because you kind of have to strike that balance between it still being recognizable that it's that character underneath, but mm -hmm. that they are just sort of like putting something on for exaggerated effect. So when he's like, in, in 1700, and stuff, so that was my turn for a flawless performance. But that also brings into what you were saying about how this conversation would be very different if it wasn't these people that Thomas does respect. Because mm -hmm. I think that we've seen Thomas when he's with strangers or people that he is having to conduct business with mm -hmm. and try to be diplomatic or like achieve a certain goal where he doesn't know them well. Mm -hmm. And in this one... He's kind of being more open of like who he is and is kind of like being open with just being like, I can't believe you're telling me this. No, wait, I can. And just like, <laughs> this is still, you know, calculated. This is an important conversation and he's bringing his A game and the impact of it is significant. But he's nevertheless being more of himself than we saw him be with say, the representative of the Amish, like, that was very much him manifestly holding part of himself back. He was, yeah. like, he doesn't hold himself back as much in uh, this conversation. And it's great to see these multiple sides of Thomas, considering how, in Cartographer's Handbook, we see, arguably, most of the book, one side of Thomas, the sort of side that he's trying to show through the handbook. In here... We're seeing him engage with multiple audiences, multiple individuals, and it's cool. It's a character piece. It's exciting. I love these chapters because there is a certain diverse quality to the like subject matter and scenarios of each one that comes with it not being a, as you were saying earlier, a case of scene leads to scene leads to scene. It's sort of like episodes of Cartographer's Washington. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Two other things that come to mind after talking this through a little bit further is once more, we remember Thomas's grounding in working in a law firm. And so therefore, that 
colors and frames how he composes an argument, not just in the handbook itself, but in conversations with these other people about trying to have a better, more cogent, more compelling argument than the other guy, so to speak, whether it's a discussion with a witness or, or uh, a conflict with another lawyer and everything like that. Mm. But on top of that, there is another quote from the West Wing that comes to mind where two of the main characters are discussing the best way to deal with a political opponent, someone that's going to be challenging President Bartlett during the next general election. In several scenes prior, the White House Communications Director, Toby Ziegler, has just been going off about this Governor Ritchie and how it sounds like with every sound bite the governor makes, he reveals just how unintelligent and uninformed he is. But that people still manage to be impressed by him because he could provide simple, populist, charismatic answers to serious questions. This Toby, as opposed to our Toby, cares very much about proving the other guy as being unfit for office. And in response, his friend and co-worker Josh Lyman says this. I don't know what gave you the impression that I had to be convinced, but I want to win. You want to beat him, and that's a problem for me because I want to win. The significance here being that Josh only cares about winning the election, and Toby wants to win a specific way that shows up Governor Ritchie and all the people that think that he's a worthy leader. Mm. And that could be symbolic of the conflict between truth and thomas here because thomas does want to succeed but more than anything he wants to succeed at the right thing he wants to succeed reshaping the nation mm. and truth it is more worried about doing the thing that might actually work better in this situation he's she's more concerned with winning Mm. Uh, it comes to a head they almost say that in their own way when mm -hmm. truth is saying like see that's the fundamental difference between you and i dad i understand people i don't try to change them unfortunately the next few lines got warped and lost a little bit in several places but the gist of it is toby pointing out that as you just heard this is the first moment that truth acknowledges thomas as her father and therefore recontextualizing this entire conversation. That's the point where almost this sort of personal insight is the moment where she drops the sort of workplace terminology and is going more for like, oh, for fuck's sake, Dad, you always are like this, and it feels quite visceral. Before we move on to, because we've been talking for a while now, and just this one conversation, it's an important conversation, as you alluded to a moment ago, this could be the most important conversation that they have in this book. Like, there are still other momentous events, but in terms of, like, important conversations, that is pretty up there. Certainly but, inciting incident -y. Yeah, it's exactly. Also we have a couple of inciting incidents in this book, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, inciting different important plot turns, yes, I would say so. So one of the things that comes up during the conversation is Thomas says explicitly something that we alluded to during our discussion of the handbook, is that the book is a test of empathy. And that kind of takes on a whole new meaning when we get to Thomas's conversation in chapter six with Sarah. And not to get too far ahead, because I do want to discuss some of the elements of Grant, one could draw the conclusion that Thomas might not have had enough faith in the ability for the majority of America to go along with his ideas. And all of the idealism came from Sarah. Thomas clearly wants people to be convinced of the rightness of his words and his ideas, as he says in conversation in chapter 8 with Butler. But he wants them to be convinced critically, which is, it's even a bigger ask, considering how scarce good critical thinking 
can be in the wider world. And that's mm. when I say that, I'm thinking about today even. I'm not even necessarily thinking about the way things were back then. Um, yeah. To, today, when... we have access to so much information, but also, unfortunately, so much disinformation. And yet, mm. we still get frustrated when people make bad decisions when the information should be out there to make good decisions. Mm. It sort of feels like a case of the effort to inform oneself is considered far too much in comparison with the much more inviting compulsion to lean into whatever the convincing figure says or whatever mm. beliefs you have sort of held on to and suspected and thing and I'm going to pull myself down before I get sucked into the rabbit hole gravity mm. thing my words uh, okay I'm bringing back bring it back bring it back I'm fine this is fine. A <laughs> uh, little secret for you listeners. Whenever I say that this is fine, it's not fine. It's mm. not fine at all. Anyway, uh, if Sarah's approach is one of giving people the chance to grow and improve as people, then I would describe Thomas's approach as conveying the necessity for the surviving population to rise to the challenge it has been faced with evolve or die it's not that he's threatening them with this several conversations early on in the book feel like he's coming dangerously close to that territory but he never tips fully over into it it's more that he understands the severity of the situation fully and he's compelled to demonstrate that to other people he hasn't given up on people he appears to have great pride and respect for the men and women in his white scarves and we can already tell he is a man who can admire the strength of character of people around him and indeed love those close to him. But the path forward is one that requires people to be the best they can be. If individuals fail the test of empathy that the handbook presents to them, then that represents the fragments of ourselves that either refuse to be or cannot be what Thomas considers the best we can be. It's a definitive stance, and you can see why the non-committal pamphlet that Conrad and Truth have put together irks him as much as it does, because it appeals to people's memories of a comforting past that he considers a step back, not a step forward towards self-improvement. I mean, the appeal to a comforting past is the kind of narrative that Republicans and populists and other people who are presenting bad faith arguments use in order to get people on their side. If you can see the face that Toby's making right now. Yeah. Greg, I have been, the last couple of days, I've been reading a few resources and things on nostalgia for a current uh, thing I'm working on. And one of the things is from this author, Svetlana Boim. And uh, I shall actually include a link in this to the show notes, which is a sort oh, of good. excerpt of one of her books. And she's written a lot on nostalgia. And she's talked about how there is kind of two forms of nostalgia. There is restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia. In this link that I will be providing, she cautions people on the dangers of restorative nostalgia, because that is something where that time that you want to go back to is something that has driven people towards dangerous like thinking and actions and has been abused that impulse has been take, picked up on and abused by people and she wrote this i think in the early 2000s and you know nothing ever changes does it nothing ever mm. changes whereas reflective nostalgia is something that is a lot more self-aware in that it acknowledges that nostalgia is not necessarily a vice, that it's something that you can enjoy the experience of it, the that sort of feeling of balancing a knife that if you shift too much in one direction, it'll fall over. The idea that you can't obtain that thing you're nostalgic for, and that's okay. 
So that's kind of what we're seeing in real world political Republican conservative things, which are saying that we need to hold on to these things because we need to get back to a better way of doing things. You know, hey, wouldn't it be good if our passports were blue again? No, it fucking wouldn't. Um, anyway. Oh, this is where I need to insert the clip again from Gross Point Blank. You can never go home again, Oatman. But I guess you can shop there. I've had that. Uh, I've been pointed in that direction uh, recently. Thank yeah. you, Sharon. Yeah, yeah it, it's in this in this story's context. Nostalgia is dangerous. It's not necessarily like something that is shown to always be something that should be stamped out. We see multiple instances of people remembering and learning from their past experiences or just taking comfort from it. We talked about James's proclivity for peppermint uh, mm-hmm. and that having a bit of sweetness to it. But the series is called New Century for a Reason. Ah, uh-huh. well played, sir. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was I was being sincere there. I wasn't trying to be smarmy or anything like no, that. No, 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 no. I just like whenever I. Uh, I just have a tendency that when someone gives me a sincere compliment on insight or things, to downplay it immediately by making myself sound pretentious as hell and go, <laughs> right, good, it was well, good analysis, what, what, <laughs> I wish you could see what that looks like recorded. I didn't even see it, and I know it was ridiculous. Slurps coughing noisily. Before moving on, because we still have a lot to cover, the mm-hmm. thing that occurs to me is that self-awareness, critical thinking, moving forward, always tends to involve a lot of work. It requires mm. effort. One might even say it requires loss sometimes, whether we're talking about loss of privilege or having to give up that memory and realize that it's misleading you know Mm. if we were to even take it even further and think about the theme of the title of the book let them go and everything like that it's a different kind of letting go that's going on there but the idea of letting go of the past so that you can build a better future is an important theme of new century but it requires people to want to do the work I speak as someone that has had to do a lot of work in order to improve myself, and therefore it can be disheartening when that feels like it's a quality in people that sometimes seems so difficult to muster. And yet at the same time, as someone that finds himself with fewer and fewer spoons to greet the day, to get through the various issues of life in terms of having the energy, having the resources of various kinds. We can also understand how people fall into patterns where they would rather do the easy thing rather than do the hard work, no matter how necessary it is. You know, I was uh, inclined to do a sort of comedic like Arlington, everyone, in that uh, to acknowledge just the places that mm-hmm. this book takes us. But yeah, I I don't want to step on that, and I do want to completely emphatically agree with that. And the, there's something to be said absolutely for the power of self-contained experiences, things like movies or standalone books just stories or media that are just not necessarily part of a grander narrative but i think what i appreciate about certain series that i've experienced in recent years that aren't necessarily contained to a single hour and a half film session or a season or just like a one-off thing but something that continues over years, over seasons, over new books and things like that, is that when they 
are engaging with just this kind of subject matter, the idea of the difficulty of continuous self-improvement and ways that we can work towards that or just to try and be better. I think that there's a value in that because it, it reinforces the notion that, yes, self-improvement and letting go of things that are holding us back, whether it's sort of social uh, hang-ups or, and I, by that I don't mean our difficulty as individuals to interact in social situations, I mean just wider social groups. We live in a society stuff. We live in a society, exactly. (laughs) But all of this is just something where I appreciate anything that helps put into perspective that there can be formative moments in your life that feel like a turning point, but it requires work for it to stick. Mm. And life does change, and it means constant sort of evaluation of your circumstances so that's what i appreciate that after you know let them go after secret rooms after cartographer's handbook and tiger's eye that we're here in arlington and we have taken on board so much of value from those stories but we move forward and it's not that we're experiencing completely new lessons some we are but it feels like some of the enduring, pervading themes of New Century continue, but by seeing it in a different context, it allows us to say, it's okay if you have to adapt, because that's what life is. You take on board the lessons, the tools you need, and you keep on adapting. And if nothing else, these stories give you a glimpse at to what life might be like for the many other people who are also continuing to adapt and mm. put in the work. Yeah. I don't have an addition to that, so... Uh... Arlington, everybody! Yeah. <laughs> See, I didn't want to step on yours. I feel perfectly comfortable stepping on my own uh, insight. Fair enough, fair enough. And that rather works perfectly as a stopping point. I could have ended earlier in order to ensure this expanded to three episodes, but having gotten here, I think that this ending works better. And it's not as if I need to have three episodes, although it would ensure breathing room. It does remind me, though, that if I want to record with Toby again soon, I need to make an outline for him for review, so that's likely what I'll work on next. I've been collecting a lot of songs to use ahead of time for Arlington, and was just hoping that the endings that the episodes came to would signpost which songs worked best. In this case, the choice is all too clear. Because of the implicit and sometimes explicit connection between Arlington and the West Wing, certain songs and performers that came to guest in the show are ripe opportunities to share songs that you may not have heard that also have proper thematic resonance with our discussions on the novel. In this case, I can't share with you the exact version that I heard. Amy Mann did an amazing cover of this song at the end of episode 3 of season 4, but because it was meant only to be background for the show, a complete version of her performance doesn't exist anywhere, and many people have tried to get it. That said, I am a fan of the original artist, and the album that it came off of, New Moon Shine. So until next time, this is James Taylor with Shine a Little Light. Let us turn our thoughts today to Martin Luther King And recognize that there are ties between us All men and women living on the earth Ties of hope and love, sister and brotherhood That we are bound together in our desire to see the world become a place in which our children can grow free and strong. We are bound together by the task that stands before us and the road that lies ahead. We are bound and
Sister and brother. 